Hello everyone, hope your day is going well. Hope you had a good week. Uh, we got some rain this week. It was really nice. And then a little hail too. We didn't need that, but we needed the rain. Uh, but you don't get to always control what you get with that. Uh, but the rain was good and the hail didn't do too much damage, so we'll make it. Uh, and hopefully things will keep growing where things are actually like looking good. The corn and beans are looking alright so far. But I'm not here to talk to you about corn and beans. <laughs> I'm here to, I can't get the farmer out of me. Uh, I'm here to talk to you uh, about Christian uh, history. And I got a really interesting uh, character I wanted to talk about today. Her name is Elizabeth of Hungary. Uh, you can guess where she's from, although it doesn't spend much of her life there, which we'll get into. Uh, and it's probably not somebody you've heard of before. She's a fairly obscure figure, uh, didn't live a long life, uh, but lived a very fascinating life. And I think uh, is a story that uh, definitely deserves uh, to be told. So Elizabeth of Hungary was born in 1207, uh, and she was a princess, like an actual princess. Her dad was the king of Hungary, Andrew II. Uh, so, I mean, born to pretty good situation. Uh, being a princess definitely has its advantages, obviously, especially in the Middle Ages, where a lot of people, uh, you know, being a peasant in the 1200s wasn't fantastic. Uh, being a princess was much better. But it also had disadvantages in that uh, you didn't have a lot of control over your life. And that's seen almost immediately in her life uh, by the fact that as an infant, she's already betrothed. Right? She is, you know, marriage alliances were a big part of being royalty, especially in Europe, especially during these times. I mean, you're still, you see it for hundreds of years going through here. Um you know, to help establish your power, to help cement your power, to help grow your power, you would marry them off to somebody else who's powerful, and that would get you, there'd be financial benefits and military benefits and all kinds of stuff. And so, at, at, uh, at a very young age, she is promised to be wed to a guy named Louis IV, or often called Ludwig. Uh, he is, his father is a landgrave, uh, which is like, what they would call a count uh, in in Thuringia, which is this region of central Germany, and so she is promised to be wed to well to some German nobility, uh, which would have been beneficial to her father in some way. Uh, so at four years old, uh, she is sent off to to go live in Thuringia. I mean, she's not getting married yet. Uh, she's not ready for married, obviously, at four and and. Ludwig is only seven years her elder, which could have been a lot worse sometimes. <laughs> On some of these situations, the man is much, much older than the woman. Uh, but they want her to grow up in the place where she will one day rule because, you know, Ludwig will one day become landgrave. And, and that, that, I mean, he, they do rule that territory. They, you know, this is, uh, that's how life worked in, in this Middle Ages. He would have been lord over this area of Thuringia and would have ruled it. And so they want her to, to grow up there, to live there, to get to know the customs, the people, the language, all of that, so she can be a good you know, co-ruler with her husband. Uh, and so that's where she grows up. She's, again, she doesn't spend much time in Hungary itself. Uh, she grows up in Thuringia, and then at t 10 years after moving there, at age 14, she gets married. So it's now uh, 1221. Uh, she's newly married. Her husband, uh, Ludwig, has now been made landgrave because his father passed in 1217 so uh, her and and Ludwig are now the rulers of of this area in central Germany 
And uh, although this marriage was set up for political purposes, uh, all the accounts we have of, of their relationship together make it very clear that they did love each other, right? that they were very devoted to each other, that they cared for one another, uh, that it was that it was a good a good marriage, you know, and and we see that um, you know he was very supportive of her and she was very supportive of him, and it was it was a wonderful relationship they had. They have a couple kids together. Uh, she's pregnant with a third. Um, life's going okay, and then it all unravels. This is uh, this is a time of crusades. That was a, a regular occurrence uh, throughout these years. Uh, people would go off, and I mean, the Crusades are a whole thing. I should do a whole podcast on that sometime. Uh, but the, you know, they would they would go off to fight holy wars. They would go off to fight the evil Muslims. They would go to try to take back uh, the Holy Land and to take back this territory that should be Christian, and you know, fight wars for Christ, for God, and and uh, defeat their enemies. And uh, that was just a part of life. And and so in twelve twenty seven, they're set to go off on a, the sixth Crusade. Uh, and Ludwig, being being nobility, uh, it, you know they were the ones charged with leading these crusades, leading the armies, uh, and so he is tasked with with being one of the leaders on this crusade. Uh, so he sets off to to go to the Holy Land, but never actually makes it there. He dies from illness in Italy, probably the plague, uh, and and the end result of it is now at twenty years old, she's a widow. Right, uh, her whole world has been turned upside down and. Uh, and if that's not bad enough, I mean that's bad enough, and there's just nothing but but more trouble that seems to to come after this event. Uh, her son is is the heir to the to the throne to the becoming the next landgrave, uh, but he's too young. He's five years old. They're not going to put him in charge yet, and so who is put in charge is is Ludwig's brother Henry, who acts as a regent. He gets to be the guy in charge until the person who's supposed to be in charge is old enough to actually rule. And so Henry now is in, in charge of this area, and he has some issues with Elizabeth and the way she's been behaving. In particular, he has issues with, with the fact that she is just far too Christian for his liking. Her faith and devotion to Christ is just too much, which seems like a crazy thing. But yeah, let me un- to kind of understand where he's coming from, and he's not entirely wrong here, actually. Uh, you have to understand what is happening in Christianity at this point in time. Right? This is a period of the church where there's a lot of a lot of reform kind of happening. This has actually been going on for over a hundred years by this point. But there's this spirit of of trying to make the church more holy, in particular its leadership. Uh, this is all done after just seeing you know decades and decades of, of corruption in the church, um, which became rife, especially like through the eight nine hundreds. You know, the clergy could get very wealthy off of, uh, well, selling church rights, selling church possessions, selling church rituals. Um, Leaders could get very wealthy out of selling church offices. Um, This was called simony, when you would be buying and selling church offices, and it was a a practice that was, I mean, just done widespread throughout Europe. Um, The clergy itself, I mean, it was anything but pure. There was a lot of corruption in the clergy. Um, in particular to, again, financial things, trying to exploit people for wealth, uh, but also uh, in terms of, you know, they were getting married. 
they were having a lot of sex. <laughs> they were. Celibacy, I, although it was supposed to be an official position, uh, a, a practice for a priest, it was not being enforced at all. And so, you know, priests were out there getting married and having families and sleeping with prostitutes and all kinds of stuff like that. And so there were there were massive reform movements that, that came around to try to, like, let's clean this up. Let's, you know, especially amongst the clergy, especially amongst church officials, they have to be held to a higher standard. Nobody's going to listen to them uh, if they keep behaving in this way, or they shouldn't be listening to them, right? And it was really this belief that, you know, the more, the less they had, right? The less they had in this world, the more they were devoted to Christ would be, you know, a, a poverty-based life. Uh, the poorer they were, the less they had, the less they possessed, the less they acted, you know, the better they were in their role as a, as a priest and as clergy. Um, so there was a guy named Pope Gregory II. He was hugely influential in changing many of these policies and cracking down on priest marrying, cracking down on simony, uh, on just cleaning things up. Right? And so as this is happening amongst the clergy, it, it kind of ebbs out into then larger well, larger society into Christianity in general. Uh, and what you see happening, again, by the time we get to Elizabeth, is, you know, there is a kind of a widespread and deep-set belief that to be Christian means to deny yourself. Like, that the more you suffer here in this world, the better you're going to be off in the world to come, um, which are biblical principles. That's stuff Jesus talked about. Um, during Elizabeth's life, we see a leader rise up who, who really really ex, uh, expands on this and, and lives it and teaches this and becomes hugely influential, a guy named Francis of Assisi, who you probably have heard of, right? You know, he gives up all of his wealth. He gives up all his possessions. He lives a life of poverty and denial, a life fully devoted to Christ, and his followers do the same because he founds a monastic order, the Franciscans. They grow rapidly throughout Europe, uh, and, and people just embrace this, this this very humble, simple lifestyle that's all about giving up the luxuries, the rewards of this world in order to grow closer to Christ and gain more in the life to come. Right? And so, in 1223, the Franciscans move into the area of Germany where Elizabeth is, and she encounters them, and she becomes immediately impacted by their message. She buys into it fully, this this humble Christian ascetic, uh, you know, poverty and service are at the core of Franciscan life. Well, they become the core of Elizabeth's life as well. So even though she's a princess, even though she's nobility, even though she has lots of wealth and money and all of this, she refuses to kind of to use it. She refuses to live it. She doesn't want that. And, and instead, she uses her wealth and her power and her influence and all that she has to enliv en enrich the lives of, of the poor around her. Right? She gives away her money or her husband's money, which, and he doesn't seem to mind any of this. He, too, kind of buys into this. And, you know, he's focused on the heavenly rewards that it will get. He doesn't actively participate in it near like Elizabeth does, but he's okay with it. He, he supports her in it, you know. Uh, if she receives jewelry as a gift, she gives it away. She will go take their fine linen cloths that they have uh, in their castle and, and make shrouds for paupers. She opens up the royal granaries. Uh, this is food designated for the nobility. Well, I'm going to give it to the poor and the hungry. Right? She uses her wealth not to build palaces, uh, but a hospital there near Wartburg. A hospital she personally worked at, tending to the needs of the sick, you know, 
there, there's talk of her going there to, to kind of, she would spend her days wiping the slobber off people's faces who were incapable of doing it themselves because they were in such sad state. Right? She, she leads this life of prayer and sacrifice, shuns the excesses of royalty and nobility. Yet even with all of this, she felt like she wasn't doing enough. Right? There's a quote from her that says, if, if there were a life that was more despised, I would choose it. But she can't just go off and, and get rid of everything. I mean, she still is a princess. She still is nobility, even though deep down she wanted to be a beggar. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, yeah, it's, you don't hear a lot of stories of this, of, of princesses growing up wishing to be beggars. <laughs> it's usually the other way around, right? Like Disney hasn't made that movie. Uh, but that's what she wanted. She wanted to be a beggar. That was her deepest desire. But she knew she couldn't because it embarrassed her husband, and it was beneath her as in her in her status as 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 a nobility, as as a princess. But she would do it anyway. She would dress up like a beggar in secret, uh, uh, and and deep down, that's what she longed to be. She just she embraced uh, all all of this kind of humble service-based getting rid of the the luxuries and the, the rewards of this life in this world uh, and living in a way that was in many ways that was suffering that was that was of, of service to others really what she does and she embraces all the trappings of monastic life without actually joining a convent or becoming a nun Something which actually was possible for her is she wasn't alone in doing this. Because with the Franciscans came this, this new kind of concept. The third order of St. Francis, they called it. Right? A third order is a new idea. The first order is friars. It's the monastic life. The second order is nuns. It's a convent. Right? The third, this, this new order that they create is for those who want to live that lifestyle, yet they're married and they got children and they got a job, they got a career, they got things to do. They can't just leave it all behind and join a monastery, which is up to this point the only way you could really um, live that lifestyle fully. Uh, but the third order says, look, you just keep doing what you're doing. You keep you be married, you raise your kids, you do your work, but you do it all while practicing you know, the religious vows and habits of a monastic life. Right? And that's what Elizabeth ends up doing. Right? She fully devotes herself uh, to Christ, even though she, she maintains her status as a mother and as the wife of a landgrave, as nobility, as a princess, and all of that. Now, again, for us, this is kind of an amazing example of, of humility and service. Uh, she's somebody worthy to be praised already for, for just the way she was living life, for, for her sacrifice and devotion to the poor and the sick in her midst. But not everybody at the time was pleased. And here's where we get back to old Henry, right? He has issues with her being too Christian, mainly in the fact that he has issues with her using his family's wealth on poor people. He's given away their money. Doesn't like it. Not a fan. And so she has, and he's not the only one in the family who has issues with this. Like I said, Ludwig supported her in this. Ludwig was fine with it. But the rest of the family, not so much. Uh, and so now that Ludwig's out of the picture, Henry's in charge, uh, they have a huge falling out. It's unclear whether he, she is actually kicked out uh, or whether she voluntarily leaves, but either way, she, she ends up leaving her post and her status and all of that behind 
uh, and even her children behind. And she does fully commit to a monastic lifestyle. She goes off and becomes the beggar she would dream she dreamed of being. Now she can do that. She, she doesn't have to be nobility. She doesn't have to be a princess anymore. She just she leaves it all, right? And she goes and she takes uh, she takes the, some vows. Not not for a convent, not monastic vows, but she takes vows uh, personally to one particular person. Right? Her spiritual overseer, her spiritual director, uh, this man who actually ends up dominating the rest of her life, a guy named Conrad von Marburg, or as she refers to him, Master Conrad, for he truly becomes her master. Uh, now, Conrad von Marburg is... Uh, there's no other way to put it. He's a horrible, horrible man. Just a horrible person, right? He's best known as an inquisitor for, he's best known for his work of stamping out heresy, right? Again, this is the age of crusades. It's also an age of inquisitions, right? Where you would go out and try to find heretics and, well, end them and <laughs> the heresies. Get rid of the heretics, uh, either by making them recant and take back everything they're saying that, uh, the church is saying is heretical, that's wrong, or by just wiping him out, by killing him. Right? And uh, Conrad von Marburg is very good, very good at this. Well, depends on your definition of good, I guess. He's very good at getting rid of people. He's very good at getting rid of people. He's very good at torturing people. He's very good at hurting people. Um, whether he's actually stamping out heresy is is another argument. Right? He, he's known for, uh, like, if you get a claim against you that you're a heretic, he's not going to put in a lot of research a lot of investigating to find out if it's true or not. He's just going to assume, nope, you are a heretic. Any accusations out there are probably true. You know, he he's big on holding people guilty, on believing people are guilty until proven innocent. It doesn't give him much of a chance to prove that innocence. So he has he has little concern as to whether or not people are actually being heretical, whether they're actually heretics, whether they actually deserve to be tortured and punished. He's all about just getting rid of people. Right? He is even known into tricking people into committing heresy and then punishing them. Right? He just He's an awful, awful man. And he ends up hurting and killing a lot of people during his life. And now, he also is dictating Elizabeth's life. Something she admittedly signs up for. Right? She is, is she seeking out suffering? Again, she, she always wanted to be less and less. Even though she's been giving out her money, even though she's been out helping the poor, she's been out in the hospital settings, even though she's really devoted her whole life to taking care of the underprivileged uh, and getting rid of all of her wealth, uh, she still doesn't feel like it's enough. Right? And she seeks out more and more suffering. And a guy like Conrad von Marburg, well, he's really good at delivering suffering. And he treats her incredibly poorly. You know, we have stories like um, at one point she misses, she misses one of his his church services and isn't there to hear his sermon. So, he has her violently beaten, so much so that her wounds are still visible weeks later. People recall, right? Under his watch, she had nothing. He deprives her of all possessions. You know, she is literally becomes a beggar, uh, and he is just incredibly harsh on her, often beating her, uh, very physical, very abusive, um, often even for things that she didn't do wrong, that, I mean, holds her to a standard that no one could possibly live up to. And and yet she she all just time and time again willingly endures it, right? Because deep down she believes that, that this is the treatment she deserves, that being treated such a way will bring her closer to Christ. Um, 
I mean, after all, Christ was also ridiculed. Christ was also beaten. And so her being beaten, she doesn't see and she sees it as something good. Right? This is drawing her closer to Jesus, which is all she cares about, all she wants. Uh, her family actually tries to help her at one point. I mean, it's clearly, <laughs> this is not a good relationship, not a good place for her to be in. Um, she's actually held hostage by her uncle because, uh, you know, they tried to convince her to, to leave Conrad, to leave this all behind, to get remarried, go find a new life. Uh, her response to this is she threatens to cut her nose off so that no man would find her attractive enough to marry. Right? She is, again, fully, fully embraced this life. Uh, and so she lives out the rest of her life um, under the watch of, of Conrad. She uh, builds a, another hospital, a larger one, um, and again, she spends her days tending to the needs of the sick. Um, in many ways, fortunately for her, she, she dies very young. She doesn't have to live under uh, Conrad's suffering for long. Uh, in 1231, she dies. She's 24 years old. We're not entirely sure the cause of her death. Um, it's speculated she may have contracted an illness. I mean, she is in a hospital daily around sick people. You know, the plague is out there. Uh, so she could have just contacted something. Um, I mean, she's young and was fairly healthy up to this point, except for the fact that she is being beaten and her body is very fatigued. And, and there's some who speculate that that, that could be the cause uh, of what happened. Her body just gave, gave out to the treatment it was receiving. Uh, under uh, von Marburg. And maybe it was a combination of the two. It's very, very possible. It was a combination of the two, that she, her body was in a weak state and she succumbed to an illness that she maybe otherwise would have been able to, uh, well, to, to, get, to recover from. Uh, but whatever it was, we're not really sure. She dies, again, at 24 years old, all too young. Uh, she dies after living a... A life where really nothing ever was in her own control uh, besides her ability to give away possessions uh, and to go out and serve people. And that's what she did. Conrad, um, just kind of to finish the story, uh, he goes on to become the chief inquisitor of Germany. Uh, he treats the German church and the German people much like he treated Elizabeth. Incredibly harsh again to them. Um, so much so that German bishops actually send a plea to the Pope asking for his removal. Uh, it's denied, and but not long after that, he is murdered. Uh, he's he's killed while traveling through the countryside. Um, we don't exactly sure who's behind this murder, but I mean, it's he's hated by just about everybody. So it could have been anyone. Uh, it could have just been a, a, somebody from the German populace who saw him and wanted to get rid of him. Uh, either way, his reign of terror is ended at this point. Uh, but, of course, it was a reign of terror that Elizabeth didn't get to escape with his death. Uh, no, she she died probably because of it. She lived a, a short and harsh life, but one she sought out. And, and she could have easily lived out a life of luxury and ease, uh, but that's not the life she wanted. She chose one of suffering. Um, she chose one of servicehood. Servanthood. She chose one of service. Uh, she chose one of poverty. Um, not the life she was given. That's the life she chose. That's the life she wanted. 
Uh, and in, in doing so, she really did believe it brought her closer to Christ. In, in doing so, she really believed it, it earned her her eternal salvation. Because that was, that was her focus, and that's all she cared about. This life, this life here was nothing. Uh, just a time to prepare for the one to come. And to prepare for that life, she suffered, and she served, and she gave everything she had. Uh, to the poor and the sick, to Ben Marburg, to Christ. Um, and as such, she was almost immediately recognized as a figure worthy uh, of praise, as, as a life worthy to be, to be raised up and maybe even emulated. Uh, and so people uh, began to, to go to her graveside, and, and we have a lot of stories of miracles occurring at her grave, as well as the hospital where she, which she built and worked at. You know, people would come to these places to be healed, and we have, we have story after story of, of miraculous healing happening um, through her grave, and, and really the, the belief is through her name. Right? And so at only after four years after her death, she's made a saint, which is, for somebody 24, to be made a saint only four years after you die, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible, uh, actually. But she is immediately, like I said, immediately recognized for, for her devotion to Christ, for her servant attitude, her servant life, for her willingness to suffer for Christ. Um, and so after, as she has made a saint, her body is, is eventually laid in this magnificent golden shrine, one you can still see uh, to this day. And it became a destination for pilgrimages uh, throughout the Middle Ages. People would travel far and wide to come and, and behold uh, Elizabeth and believe that there were, was miraculous powers in, in being near uh, her, her body. Um, so for many people, she served as an example of, of everything Christ called us to be. And I think she still does serve as an example today. You know, she followed Christ's teachings as far as they would go. She gave up everything she could in this life uh, in order to gain Christ. Uh, she used what she had to benefit others, not herself. I mean, these, these really are all great things. Right? They are uh, all things worthy to be. Uh, emulated all, all worthy things to give her praise for doing. Um, yet, at the same time, her, her story definitely has a warning in it as well. Anyway, to give oneself for Christ is one thing, and it's a great thing. To actively seek out suffering uh, is another. And uh, through von Marburg, she definitely sought out some pretty extreme suffering. Yeah, I, don't, I don't believe that's what we're called to do as Christians. I mean, life is, life is hard enough. I mean, Christ wants our sacrifice, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wants our suffering, right? And, and to sacrifice things in this life to, for the sake of others, to love our neighbor as ourselves, all of that is just fantastic stuff. But to allow someone to, to beat us, to abuse us, uh, no. No, we don't need to do that to grow closer to Christ. Um, I wish somebody could have told her that. I wish very badly. Somebody could have told her that, uh, but they didn't, and she didn't know that, and so she ended her life in, in suffering and, and pain. Uh, and yet, we can believe that, you know, the good that, uh, the, heart, the harsh way she lived her life uh, is probably forgotten by her now, and the goodness of, of living with Christ for all eternity. I mean, uh, if anyone deserves a reward, uh, she deserves a reward. Um, and, and again, she still is someone who we can raise up in as an example of, of true service, of true devotion, of true love 
towards those around them and to Christ. And, uh, you know, she's a saint. She's a saint, and deservedly so. She's a saint who needed somebody to love her. And uh, and now she, I, I'm fully convinced, you know, now she she receives that love through Christ. She gets it now. She didn't get it in life. Um, I hope you, whoever you are listening to this, I hope you get it in life as well as in the life to come. Uh, because, you know, it's it's okay to suffer in this life, and, and we will suffer. You know, life's not always going to be great, and there is points of sacrifice, but to be abused, to be beaten, that's that's a whole different thing. Right? Elizabeth didn't need that, and neither do you. I hope you don't have that. Uh, so that's the story of Elizabeth, of Hungary. A, a saint, uh, someone who lived a, a short, but again, very very influential and very meaningful life. And she impacted a lot of people and did a lot of good in her 24 years of life. Even in the midst of her own suffering, she did a lot of good. Uh, and that's something worthy to be praised. And, and, and hers is a story uh, worth being remembered. So I hope you have a good one. Until next time, take care.